Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, how great you are. How great a love you have for us that you would send so great a Savior to reconcile us back to you. And you have entrusted to each of us this message and ministry of reconciliation. We see it so clearly through the book of Acts and the apostles and in the life of Paul especially. Holy Spirit, come, anoint this time, anoint our ears, anoint me, your servant, that we may hear your word and be inspired to be agents of reconciliation in this world to be bearers of hope and good news in a time of darkness and despair and confusion. Come, Holy Spirit, ignite in us your fire. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. Today I told Father Benji I was a little disappointed. I was expecting a longer passage from the book of Acts to preach on. I uh, only had 41 verses to work with. So don't get your hopes up. <laughs> but uh, we see today in the book of Acts that God's opportunities often come with opposition. They don't often look the most pleasant and beautiful. It comes with challenges. And quite a while back, in the year 1269, one of my favorite names to say, Kublai Khan. I told him earlier it sounded like it would be a good name for a band, the Kublai Khans. He sent a request from Peking to Rome for a hundred wise men of, Christ, of the Christian religion and so I shall be baptized, and when I shall be baptized, all my leaders and great men shall be baptized, and all their subordinates shall be baptized. That's a lot of baptizing. So that there will be more Christians here than in your part of the world. The Mongols were wavering in their choice of religion, but as it might have been, as the Khan forecasted, this could have been the greatest religious movement the world had ever seen. The whole history of Asia would have changed. But what actually happened? Pope Gregory X sent two Dominican friars. They got as far as Armenia, could endure it no longer, and returned home. So passed one of the greatest opportunities for the gospel in the history of the church. Some of the saddest words we can say or think are this. What could have been? Some of the saddest people I have met are those who are eat up with regret. Godly opportunities, when they come, are usually not that which we had expected. Much like when Shell and I returned from the mission field, staying in a very small apartment with my mother, I sent application after application out, went to interview after interview, and they all said the same thing. Uh, I don't think you're what we need. I'm like, do you see me? How do you say that? Like, Until... <laughs> Easy. 
<laughs> Until I, there was one morning in prayer, I said, God, I don't care who says it, what place it is, what job it is. I just want to hear these words. You are exactly what we need in this place. A couple of days passed. I was called back for an interview. The manager comes out, looks over my resume. We chat for a minute. She goes, well, you definitely have a lot of qualifications. You seem like a great guy, but, uh, you know, I don't think you, you, you know, you'd be interested in the job that I would offer you. But I think you're exactly what we need in this place. Word for word, what I asked God to tell them, have them say. And that place was Wendy's. And I fulfilled my word to God. I took the job, $7.25 an hour, learning how to put the letter W in mayonnaise and mustard on a hamburger. You know, you have to put it in the letter W at Wendy's. Dave Thomas, picky man. But it was in that place that I realized why God brought me there, because much like Ephesus, it was pretty much a cesspool of sin. There was a lot of alcoholism going on on the job. Not me. The manager was sleeping with workers. There were drugs everywhere. And in my shift, which was from 3 p.m. till 1 a.m. in the morning, most of the guys that came to work were either flying high or they would go take the garbage out, and when they came back, they would be flying high. But it was through all of that I say, God, I don't know why. I do know why. I just don't want to know why. You put me here. But I befriended those guys. And it was a revolving door. And for years and even still to this day, in Kernersville, kids, well, they're not kids now. This was several years ago. They were out of school and college. They will come up to me and say, hey, Josh. Josh is my work name. People I only care about know me by shame. So you're blessed and fortunate. You know me by shame. But they would come up and say, hey, Josh, hey, man, you remember me? We worked together at Wendy's. Thank you so much for being a great manager. Thank you so much for being just a great leader. Thank you so much, man. Many, many times. God's opportunities are not always what we expect, but he has a reason. And this is what we see Paul in Ephesus today. He told the Corinthians, I have to stay here because there's a great door of opportunity for me. In Corinthians chapter 16. Ephesus was a great city. It was huge. It was 300,000 people, give or take a few. Paul started with 12. Good start. But Ephesus was a place of great wickedness. Morality was almost non-existent. It was spiritually dark. It was a deep, dark hole of paganism. And Paul said, this is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. And like Paul, I have found God puts me in places that need Jesus the most. Most desperately need him. Because after all, remember what Jesus called us? Other than sheep, you are the light of the world. And where are lights most useful? Anybody? In the dark. 
I mean, what good is a light in the middle of the day in a field? But in the dark, it is very useful. And that's our life. Your light is the reason why you're here. To shine in the dark. Maybe on Monday morning, checking into work, going to school, walking in your neighborhood, there's somebody in darkness that needs to see the light that is in you. They need to see the Jesus that's in you. That's why we have altar candles. We don't really need them to see anymore. Well, what are they there for? Well, they look aesthetically pleasing. No, nothing in the church is for aesthetics, okay? That's why I love our church. It's not decorative. There's a couple of things. One side is the gospel. The other side is the Old Testament. It also speaks to us of the humanity and divinity of Christ, two natures. And in the old church, and we still did this in the great country of the Philippines because the archbishop wanted to do everything like it was in the 900s, <laughs> basking in his opulence included. Before the dismissal, the candles are extinguished. Not so you know the service is over, but to remind us this light is not to be kept here. But we go out with this light. We go out with this light to shine like Paul did and change our world. And Paul succeeded even amidst great opposition. And these opportunities come with opposition. And most of Paul's opposition, funny enough, comes from different religious groups. Not a lot's changed. <laughs> the first group were a group of inadequate religious people. Paul, of course, where does he go? Synagogue. He talks to them. He reasons with them. And finally, they decided we want to continue in our stubbornness and unbelief. They kicked Paul out of the synagogue. Inadequate religion. They didn't like Paul disrupting their routine. They were happy with the shadow. They were comfortable with what they had figured out. They wanted just enough to ease their conscience. I don't want to get serious. Just enough to ease my conscience. Much like today, we have a lot of people who do their Sunday duty just to feel good about themselves. Jesus Quoting Isaiah today sums this up very well. But their hearts are far from me. Paul was consumed with Jesus. Everything, as he said, is garbage compared to knowing him. One translation says, I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could be embraced by Christ and so I could embrace him. Because for Paul, knowing Christ was more than an intellectual assessment. It was a manifested experience. Changed his life. Where can we experience Christ? Hmm. You just did when you heard the scriptures being read. You are right now. I know it looks like me, but it's really not me. You will really get up close and personal in a few minutes when you hold your hands out. That's Jesus. 
How? I don't know. I don't want to know. I just want to believe. Because it's him. And that burning passion that, that Paul had for Jesus, that's what we have to have. We don't want to be inadequate. And we definitely don't want to be the next group of people, the imitation religious people. Paul was a hardworking man. He was a bivocational apostle. I feel in good company. I'm bivocational. Go bivocational people. We're a great team. But he made tents, and he was in Asia. And if I know one thing about Asia, it's hot. It's real hot. You don't even need a weather forecast. You don't even have to have a weather forecast. There are no meteorologists because it's going to be hot every day. Paul made these tents, and he sweated, and he had handkerchiefs to wipe his sweat, and they took those handkerchiefs for some reason and sent it to sick people, and sick people were healed. Why would Luke record that? Not only was it interesting, but Ephesus was the headquarters of Diana worship, or Artemis and, and Roman. Diana was Greek, same person, same God. And this, in this pagan temple, they emphasized that everybody there had to have pristine, white garments. Perfectly pressed, beautiful. They were used in their rituals. And here God was telling in the face of their pagan religion, what your perfect garments can accomplish, my servant Paul's sweaty hand rags can do infinitely more. Miracles. So the word got around that this Paul is doing amazing things. Here comes the imitators, the seven sons of Sceva, Siva, however you want to say it. Sceva. They go and try to do the same thing Paul did. And what happened? The demon says, Paul, I know, Jesus, I know, but who are you? And imagine the scene. That guy jumps on seven other guys beats them down, strips them naked. They all flee out of that house, scared like a chicken at Colonel Sanders' house. That is scared. Just a picture of that for a minute. But what was the result? In verses 18 and 19, there was genuine life change in the people. They came and burned all their books. Because when Jesus is magnified in and by our lives, we change. The most important thing we can ask ourselves on a daily basis, God, what needs to change in me? In that process, I've heard it called by different things. One of them is uh, growing up was sanctification. Don't drink Pepsi out of a bottle. Don't play cards. Don't go bowling. Don't go to a movie. A whole pile of rules. Say, God, this is not just not working, man. Until I stumbled across the Greek Orthodox understanding. Thanks be to God. Theosis. It even sounds better. <laughs> Sanctification sounds like a painful procedure. Theosis sounds pleasant. But the process, theosis means the process of becoming more and more like God. 
a process, not just a one-shot deal, but a lifelong process. Because you see, God wants to change you like he changed these people, like he changed Paul. But in order for some of us to change, if not all of us, there may be some old stuff that's got to go. It's in the way. A past regret, an attitude, a habit, a relationship. These people burned all their stuff up. And the amount of stuff they burned up was 150 men's wages for a year. 150 years of wages. That's a lot of money. But I have a question for you. Is there anything that you are so attached to that it is competing with Jesus? For me, one vivid example was when I was in college. I have to confess, you probably didn't know this about me, but I am a member of uh, GA, that's Guitars Anonymous. I was a guitar holic. It consumed my life. I had all kinds of stuff, man. I, I mean, my, my room looked like a, a music studio. Some of the stuff that I had was very rare now and collectible. And I get aggravated when I see the value of what I had just keep climbing higher and higher and higher and higher. And I had, where is it at now? I don't know. But when I was in college, I had all that stuff and I was jamming out for Jesus. And then he said, get rid of it all. This is Gibson here, Jesus. 1978, vintage, with the original case. Get rid of it. You're talking about that amp that now nobody even wants to sell because they're so hard to get. They're out of business. It was a hot-rodded Marshall made in Russia. Get rid of it. You only keep a bass guitar to play at church on Sunday morning. But God, you gave me this talent. Why do you want me to get rid of it all? Because my affection for guitar, believe it or not, was competing with my affection for Jesus. So I sold it all. Because if Jesus is not our all, he's nothing. We can't even let anything get close to him. He even said, if you don't hate everybody, you can't follow me. Whoa. Hate? Our love for Jesus should be so great, it is not even comparable to even call it love that we have for other people. Those were the pretenders. They didn't really care about Jesus. The last group that Paul faced opposition from was the idolatrous religious people. After all, Ephesus was the temple of Artemis or Diana in Greek, the goddess of fertility. Sex was the center of worship. It was the biggest religion of the area. And her temple was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And here is Paul, one man with 12 guys or 12 people that he found that believed, taking on this great system of belief. But in all of it, Paul was an overcomer. 
Even when he was kicked out of the synagogue and moved to the hall of Tyrannus, Paul was in a storefront church. Man, that's pretty cool. A rented hall, nothing to even call their own. And the message was quite simple. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. And the contest was against the temple of Artemis. 220 years to build, 100 huge columns reaching to the sky. Pleasure was the paramount of that religious belief system. How in the world would Paul think he could topple that? Preaching the cross, temple, pleasure, cross. But I don't know if you know, Paul won. Years after he left, the temple burned down, the great temple of Artemis. And historians recorded that it was not rebuilt due to lack of interest. How are we going to make the most of these opportunities that God presents before us, even with the opposition? Well, be like Paul. How? I always ask, how? Like Paul, Paul was motivated to encourage Christ's church, his church. The second half of Acts, Paul is ministering to churches, and that's his priority. Why did he care so much for the church? Because Jesus cares for the church. It's his beloved. We are his beloved. If you don't believe me, read the Song of Solomon. That's about Christ and his church also. Great things there. And the question we have to ask ourselves today is, do you love the church? I'm not talking about just Christ's church, because it's easy to love us here, okay? It's very easy to love us, especially me. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to say that, but I did think it, so I should have just said it. But do you love the church, people? Because the church is people. Is it your priority to bring hope and life and encouragement to others. We can't let the busyness of our days distract us from the people God sends us. Remember, heaven rejoices over one person who repents. That one person is valuable, wanted, desired. Let's get a little more serious. Are you ready to get more serious? I'm glad I've got the holy poncho on. Because I'm going to ask you a really tough question. This gives me the authority to ask hard questions. What effect does your presence have here at Christ Church? What effect does your presence have here at Christ Church? Because we are only as strong as every member supplies. And that's our job. Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. 
Encouragement is everyone's job because we all need it and we can all give it. It doesn't have to be complicated. It can be simple like a smile, a compliment, a cup of coffee, eating the last maple donut so he don't get it back there. You know, he's trying to watch his weight and I don't really care. That's an inside joke. It could be a round of golf. Get the hint, please. Or it could be one of my personal favorite ways of encouragement, Celtic Evensong. I know it sounds hyper-spiritual, and it really is, because it involves grain offering and incense. And if you need more information, feel free to approach me later. Encouragement. That's right. Somebody's getting it. But how else can we be like Paul to make the truth in love the bottom line? These people in Ephesus were concerned about their livelihood. Demetrius panicked. I'm going to go broke. I'm going out of business. This little man is ruining my business. He didn't care about the temple. He cared about his wallet. Much like this father who wrote a letter to his, his daughter's ex-fiance. And it went something along these lines. Johnny, I am so sorry I rejected you from marrying my daughter. I let your mohawk, your tattoos, your joblessness, and the fact that you sleep under the bridge get in the way of seeing what a really great guy you are. Please reconsider marrying, marrying my daughter Sincerely, your future dad. P.S. Congratulations on winning the lottery. <laughs> what was he concerned about? The same thing Demetrius was. But Paul was concerned about making the truth in love known. He wrote to the Ephesians later on, Never let ugly or hateful words come out of your mouth. But let your words become beautiful gifts that encourage others. Do this by speaking words of grace to them. We must never apologize for the truth of Jesus. But it must never be arrogant or harsh. We do not have to hit people in the head with the Bible. I've met a few. I think it would work. But I, I didn't try it out. I refrain from trying it out. Because of the way, as they described the Christians, the way will disturb people. It affects our old lifestyles. That's why Demetrius was in an uproar. It affects our personal preferences. That's why the Jews were all scatterbrained and, and stubborn. They didn't want to change because they liked what they had. And it is exclusive. It invalidates all other ways. After all, it's called the way. What does the word the mean? The next word means that's the only one. The way. There's not ways. There's only one. And people don't want to hear that. We live in a world that the running motto is, I do what I want. You know how many times I hear that? I do what I want. Paul didn't make 
people's business or livelihood or their false sense of peace a priority. He made truth spoken in love. Jesus is the bottom line. We're bearers of his love and grace. Jesus has to be the bottom line. If we are not pointing to, introducing Jesus to people, letting people see Jesus through us, we're missing the reason why we're here. Lastly, how can we be like Paul? Don't give in to or fear the opposition. Paul had a lot of it. Just a few things that come up in our, our, our small reading from Acts. Uproar, confusion, doing something rash, riots and commotion, being kicked out of the synagogue, two hours of chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. These people were riled up and they were making so much noise. Confusion, fear, intimidation. All tactics of darkness. The enemy loves to make a lot of noise, but there's no substance because God is always greater. God is always greater. How do we overcome? Peter said it best. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. That's what Paul did. Paul didn't panic that they're chanting great as Artemis of the Ephesians. He didn't get his feelings hurt that he was kicked out of the synagogue. He didn't care that they were causing an uproar and there was riots. I could see him sitting in the corner now. They're playing right into my hands. They're going to turn to Jesus. Because he knew something. The Lord was with him. And I want to tell you something today. No matter what opportunity, what obstacle, what commotion is going on. The Lord is with you because God is always greater. He's with you. Godly opportunity comes with opposition, but we can make the most of it in spite of the opposition by seeking to encourage people, the church, by speaking the truth in love, and that's the bottom line. That's what it all boils down to. And by not giving in to the opposition. And believe me, it will come. And I want to share with you a wonderful quote from a very wonderful theologian from Philadelphia. Didn't know anything other than cream cheese came out of there. In the words of Rocky Balboa. <laughs> to his son. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. And it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. 
you, me, or nobody ain't going to hit as hard as life hits. But it ain't how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. No matter what the Ephesians tried to throw at Paul, he kept going. And I challenge you, no matter what's being thrown at you, keep going for Jesus. And I close with St. Ignatius. There are very few people who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves into his hands and let themselves be formed by his grace. I pray that we will all be people who long to be formed by God's grace. I pray that we will constantly cry out to the Lord, Lord, I am yours. Make me what you will. You have been commissioned and empowered to change the world one person at a time. May we follow Paul and bring the light of Jesus to our world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.